you. Welcome to Court Games again. Welcome to our guest, Shannon Calvar, to talk about adventures in Rokugan. We've mm-hmm. previously been talking a lot about uh, some differences between adventures in Rokugan and base L5R in terms of just the general approach to the world. We've talked a bit about species. And now we are going to get into my favorite toys, uh, the classes and the archetypes. So Mm -hmm. uh, we want to talk about those. In general, the classes are how you would do schools in in them. uh, Yeah. And then archetypes are like subgroups of them. Let me not disagree with Kiki Takeori there, but let me say there's also something else that classes do. Right. And it's actually the same thing that species do. And that is that they are they are absolutely mechanical constructs that are used to describe what it is your character can do. Right. But they are also ways that you hook yourselves into the bigger themes of the adventure. Right. Saying that I am a human. Bushy. Shinobi says something different about me than saying I am a Naga pilgrim ritualist. (laughs) I don't even have to know what that means to mechanically to know that those are two different characters who are going to interact with a conflict about love and sincerity differently. (laughs) Did that make sense? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, so they're, they're mechanically constructs, but they're also going back to that, that little triangle I use, right? is a toy, a game, and a simulation. Um, They're also, they connect to things in that toy, in that story part of the game that we really do have to talk about. So does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, well, tell us. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you have, in L5R, you have hundreds of schools. It is probably not hundreds, but it's a lot. (laughs) It could well be. School, School bloat is a common complaint. Yes, 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 yes. Um, in any kind of D20-ish game, you're going to have a more limited number of character classes. Uh, way back way back in the day, our character classes were things like uh, Magic User and uh, Fighter and Elf. Elf was a character class. <laughs> um, but we've come, a, we've come a long way since then, at least in descriptive naming, right? Well, no, fighter is still fighter. (laughs) Fighter is still fighter. (laughs) Uh, Rogue is still rogue. Uh, Thief thief back in the day. Um, And so, but we're still using the same idea. This idea that there is a very channel-wised way of advancing your character, right? And that, it it has a very predictable growth path. If I want to create something that's more, that's broader, then I'm going to have to do what we call multi-classing. Notice that when I described the Naga, I didn't, I said, what would I say? It was like a Naga ritualist pilgrim. And you'd have to multiclass in this specific setup to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Because each class represents a development path with set proficiencies, not skills, proficiencies, things you're good at, and a set of abilities going back to actions, resources, and space for a game, right? So each character class is going to bring its own resources to the table. It's going to bring action options, right? You're going to have a generic set of actions you can take and then some that are given to you by your character class. And that's going to allow you to manipulate the game space in different ways. So and we think about it like that, or at least I think about it like that. Then I take a look at this list of character classes, right? Um, and I don't know how you want to do this. Do you just want me to bloviate? Do you want to talk about it? I mean... I'll I'll introduce each class and archetypes, and then maybe we can talk about some of the strengths and some of the the weaknesses uh, of them uh, as a ability to get stuff done or things that they would be particularly good at. How's that sound? Does that sound all right to you? Sure. The kind of things that you know, both mechanically that they'd be particularly good at, and um, you know maybe storytelling wise, but but focusing a little bit more on the mechanics. Okay, great. All right, the first character class as it were is the bushi and the bushi are the the standard uh, warriors soldiers i guess of the system you get a couple of abilities uh associated with your class and then when you hit rank three you for i think all of them you pick a um 
archetype to go with them. So under Bushi, there are three options of archetypes, which are arms masters, which are kind of the uh, Akoto commander types. There's protectors. Those are the Yojimbo types. And Vanguard is the weapons master kind. Uh, uh, the Matsu, I think Matsu are weapons master style would be the Vanguard. So those are Bushi. So what are your thoughts on the Bushi class in general? So let, let's actually, we were just talking about fighters, right? So the biggest, one of the biggest complaints about the D20 systems is that they basically, for fighters, come down to, I hit the guy with the stick over and over again. Yeah. Right? Uh, in a D20 game system, a lot of my focus is on the building my character, which builds my resources. And then I have a very narrow range of options of things I can do. And that's actually, there, there's a lot of value in that, right? I build my character and I know what I can do and I have certain abilities that I can use at a given time. Mm-hmm. So... The thing that they introduce here in Bushi, and they're going to use it again in Duelist, is this concept of focus. So as I am taking actions, as I am assuming stances, which I've also added, so I can start to make choices about what stance I'm in in reaction to events in the game space, which then affect my action, because I then begin to amass a new resource called focus that I can use either to take specific actions called techniques. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So it's they've they've made a decision to change with Bushi where they've said, look, rather than my having I have a rather than having my set set of actions. So my son plays a uh, fox gunman. He's actually a fox and he has pistols uh, in in a, in a D&D game. And what he does every round is he takes his two shots with his pistol and his one shot with his bonus action with his other pistol. And that, that's what he does every round. And then he has one or two choices he can make. Here they're saying, look, you're going to make choices every round to build focus and then spend focus, build focus, spend focus, build focus, spend focus. And each of my archetypes is going to change the way that I think about it. Right. Yeah, so like yeah. a samurai arms master gets bonuses when using the six basic weapons. Right. Spear, bow, long and short sword, knife and unarmed strikes. Uh, and they they give bonuses to the to their allies. A protector gets abilities to actually defend and protect other players, some of which help them, some of which don't. Uh, the, the mechanically, it depends. A vanguard, which is kind of the you know, I am a master. <laughs> uh, I'm a master fighter. Uh, mm. has all sorts of abilities to like pick up weapons, and if they do different kinds of damage types, they do different things during their turn. Oh, okay. So hitting with a different stick. Hitting with a different stick. It actually makes it that actually makes a mechanical difference instead of Right. Right, okay. Well, and it's not just my stick, right? I could do that with the there's a feat called uh slasher or piercer, uh, where I could I could pick as part of my character background that I was really good with piercing weapons. But right, here, right, right. if I can grab somebody's fallen spear, I get a bonus. And so what, they're, what they've done with Bushi is they've tried to make it much more inter... I hate to, Again, I hate this word interactive. They're building and spending resources, focus, very quickly. Right. Right. And they're doing that by choosing different stances based off of events in the game space. So they've got this whole interaction where they're these tough fighters who are constantly thinking tactically about how am I going to fight this foe, this group of foes? And a more fl- the, the attempt, and I, I'm going to have to do more than just you know run through it a couple of times, uh, is to make it a more fluid experience. I, I have heard people say that they actually way prefer this to any of the standard D and D fifth edition fighter classes, to the extent that someone's saying, "I I think this is how we do fighters from now on," <laughs> essentially. Well, and but that it's that. The, the change is in, that, is in that renewable and manipulatable resource, the focus. So I have stances and focuses and techniques, stances to help me build focus, to generate techniques, and also apply status conditions, right? Yeah. So if you miss, in one case, if you, get, if you are missed, you can apply marked for death, which gives you bonus damage. I mean, so that's what a bushi is. A bushi is a fighter, yeah. right? 
Uh, but it's a fighter that's a very fluid. The attempt is to create a very fluid approach with with focuses that create particular events. Now, if you are a if you are a champion fighter, a player, right, the, the guy who really just wants to roll your dice and hit your stuff with the stick, this is not the class for you. <laughs> so the next class that comes along is is Duelist. Now, Bushi has solid, you know, I think it's a D12 hit points. It's, it's fairly strong, sturdy class. Uh, Duelist is more your um, glass cannon class. Um, it has uh, a D8 hit points, but very strong attacks. It also uses stances. Um, well, right. But it, also stances builds up dead, it also builds up deadliness. Um, so there's a different, there is a dual mechanic that's much later in the book. So we won't be able to talk about that today. <laughs> But um, right. it, it makes these one-on-one, while Abushi can just, like, be powering through a lot of opponents, uh, a duelist is really good at the one-on-one, uh, one-on-one combat, just, just kind of like it is for L5R. There's three archetypes for that. There is the Blade Master. This is the, um, you know, single blade. This is your Kikita, Kikita duelist. Sword Saint. Sword Saint, yes. Uh, there is the Adept. This is the two weapons duelist of Miramoto style. Um, okay. More, more spiritual and worldly, I guess. That sounds <laughs> yeah. that sounds strange, but if you know Dragon, then you know what I mean by both more spiritual and worldly <laughs> than the uh, Kikita. And then there's the Death Dancer. The Death Dancer is your Scorpion duelist. That's not always playing to win, but it playing to do um to manipulate the um social setting right around the duel uh, the combats as as well as doing the the duel itself so maybe you can talk about those just i'm going to step sideways just slightly Mm -hmm. um in that remember i mentioned multi-classic so it's really important here to think not about the schools as they were classes and archetypes, but the schools are combinations of classes, right? So a Kikita mm. duelist might well just be a blade master, although that'd be sort of weird. They're more likely actually some kind of a duelist blade master courtier for the additional skills that that would bring. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so absolutely you know, do think about it. Do think about the archetypes kind of, they even say, you know, the death dancer is a Bayushi uh, or give them as an example. Uh, but there's more to the, there's more to the schools than just the classes. Mm. Right. And that's just the best way to kind of visualize it before we go into mechanics. Sure. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. If a Bushi is plowing through a bunch of opponents in a fluid tactical situation, Right. A duelist is killing one foe. <laughs> yeah. Really hard. <laughs> really hard. And they have a lot of abilities that are very useful for that, including something that reads a little weird, um, where they can, as a free action, uh, challenge someone to a duel. In right. order for that to make any sense, you have to realize that any person, as a bonus action, so if you know D&D or the D&D 5th edition, uh, you have an action, a bonus action, a free action, and a move action. Yeah. Right? They, they, they literally, they change, everybody can, as a bonus action, de- duel any, or you know, declare a duel with anybody else. They don't have to accept. Yeah. Um, but a duelist can, as a free action, initiate that duel. They can pick their target. They get bonuses against attacks from people who are not in their declared duel. So attacking a duelist who is in a duel is probably not the easiest thing. It's not the easiest thing, and it's not even a good idea because uh, they will punish you for that. And they get the ability to manipulate what are called danger dice. So that's a new resource, right? Remember we were talking earlier about resources? So they, they get focus, and as they build up danger dice, they get more focus. So they're encouraged to be in duels. Mm. And they can use focus to... Purchase martial techniques, which allow them to do things like charge in a straight line and you know, attack everybody on the line or <laughs> do all of those things that you would imagine in a samurai drama they might pull, try to pull off. 
And danger dice are risky to the duelist as well as the duelist target, if I understand it correctly. Yes. So it, it's like, we're, now we're in a situation, I'm building up danger dice. That means you can hit me harder and I can hit you harder. So now this situation is, rather than like having a special scenario, you know, outside of a combat where you call it like in fifth edition, right? It's like, okay, in this conflict between two of us, we're like much more dangerous to each other than anybody else going on. And, and so that builds up this high risk situation within this one-on-one within this context of a bigger conflict. Mm, right. And so that actually, I, I know there's a lot of talk about hacking Hacking the duelist class to raise their hit points. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that a lot. Yeah, which is fine, I guess. But part of the point of the way that the resource game for a duelist works is that high-risk, high-reward approach. Yes, yes. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about... I might raise it to a D10 myself, but I understand the design decision to put it at a D8, right? Because they're trying to create that tension, um right um and they're trying to they're trying to get you to duel because you're a duelist and you're good at it while simultaneously making it risky for you to do so yeah and and that's as as a design space thing that's something that's very difficult to do in legend of the five rings fifth edition it's Mm -hmm. very very difficult because the player has so much choice over what the dice right do it's very difficult to do a high-risk, high-reward setup. It's actually really hard to do that. Right. Whereas in your, your Dungeons & Dragons, as in Adventures Rock Rockgun, that's a, a, a thing you can explore. You can have a high-risk, high-reward glass cannon as an option, which can allow all sorts of things you couldn't do otherwise. Right. And so, I mean, it... The duelist on paper, and actually I did some I did some simulation testing, and I'll be running some adventures in Rokugan soon. But uh, if I look at it just as a designer and I do the math, it looks like it, it, this fits together really well. Uh, I don't think outside of a duel, they are probably a little weak. But the right. ability as a bonus action in the first two levels and then as a free action to force duel, or not force dueling, but create dueling. Your, play, your, your game master should, if you're playing a duelist, your game master probably should let you duel, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm just saying. Um, you know, that that gives it its, its strength and its balance. Um, and I really, cool. yeah, uh, the Death Dancer in particular is kind of an interesting structure. I mean, I like all of them. Uh, but the Death Dancer actually works with the Frightened status effect. So yeah. okay. if, you don't, if you don't know D&D, it has a lot of status effects. Yeah. Um, and frightened is one of the one of the more difficult ones, and it's it's kind of interesting to see it played with. Okay. Yes, you are terrifying. You're a bully. If you're, you're a, a bully, dancer. you're just like all about posing and <laughs> 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 making everyone afraid of you. <laughs> yep. Um, so that that's the duelist. It, that's a solid class. The next class, and this is probably. The furthest, uh, role-playing-wise, from anything that Dungeons & Dragons has is the courtier. Um, the courtier uses basically uh, another resource that is accumulated, intrigue dice, basically. And then they can spend them on their techniques, which are called rhetorical flourishes. And... I played one of these at Gen Con, and these are, they are kind of complicated to play by themselves. They are an information gathering class, all right? Right. Uh, There are two kinds of archetypes for them. They are diplomat and investigator, uh, but both kind of run on this principle that you get information from your target by investigating or doing other things. And then you can uh, employ that information to buff yourself against or buff your teammates against or otherwise um, work against a target. Uh, They are definitely of a support class nature, um, but 
they can completely dominate the whole investigation minigame. Completely dominate them. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you want to um, talk about that? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what else to say. No. Um, <laughs> well, I played so, this one, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. Now, so the courtier does what it says on the 10, right? It is a social class. It uses intrigue dice as an intermediate resource to generate clues. Mm. Um which literally they're called clues <laughs> literally they're called clues uh which is yet another resource um and these and they have rhetorical flourishes which a lot which fill in the action reaction bonus action free action space okay so why is that important right um in D&D, in the D&D 5th edition, you have, we mentioned you have these action types. But it's entirely possible to build a character who has no bonus actions, for example. Right. <laughs> or no reaction. Um, and in any, ga- in any game, any game at all, it, it, it's a game, therefore it has an action economy, right? So the more actions you have, the better off you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the fact that at 6th level, courtiers get an extra... F- you get a second reaction. That is actually very strong. Or, or can be. It can be. Well, there's nothing here saying that it has to be a rhetorical flourish. No. <laughs> uh, so I can, if I want to have multiple reactions, I just, you know, take Courtier to six. Um, and for all of the D&D 5th edition players out there, you're going, oh, well, uh, yeah. Um yeah, big, big, because like there's a whole bunch of stuff like like uh, counter spells work off reaction if I remember right. Um, you do attacks of opportunity run off mm-hmm. reactions, and so there are certain things where people will deliberately try and provoke a reaction. Mm-hmm. So now you can't do another. So now I can do the thing I want to do, and I'll be safe because you don't have a reaction. The court goes, well, actually, it turns out. It turns out. Yes. Yeah. So you have this whole. Th- you have this whole thing, and then now you have all of these clues that are being generated, right? Mm. Which are giving you information. Now, we've talked about how L5R has something of a social game. D&D has even less. But yeah. now you have this whole clue-based structure, um, as well as the ability to apply status effects to other characters, as well as a full action economy in a single class. Um, that's pretty cool. It's kind of like you took bards, took away their magic, gave them a reasonable action economy, <laughs> uh, and then fixed the major problem with them, which is that bardic inspiration dice are really kind of cool because I can just give you, I can give you this D6 or a D8 or a D10 and have you roll it, but it could roll a one. Uh, and so that, well, that kind of stunk. Uh, but I can give you multiple intrigue dice. I can use multiple intrigue dice and use the highest value of them. So this now gets to this idea of controlling. You, you mentioned that in L5, you know, in uh, L5R 5th edition, we went a little bit far towards the players can, you know, control their dice pools. And, you know, you're always succeeding in some way, which is awesome-ish. Unless you're failing. <laughs> but does remove some of the stakes. Uh-huh. Unless you're failing, and then you're really failing. <laughs> um and so here we have an attempt to bring some more of that into the Dungeons and Dragons kind of an approach, an adventures approach. Mm. It is good. It is a good class. I did use it during uh, Gen Con to basically save someone else from a fumble. It was out. You know, is this? You know, if 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 you have a courtier in your group and you mess up, uh, especially a non-combat role. And the courtier's mm. been like making clues all the time. Yeah, they can end up adding a lot to somebody else's role and fixing their boo boo. Absolutely, and and keeping and those clues are really a, an interesting and very flexible resource um, that they don't do as much with as they could. Uh, but obviously, this is a book, and that you've got what five pages to do courtiers here. So. <laughs> um, I, I think there's a, it might, might, it's more than five. It's like almost 10, but it's nowhere near enough space for what they're trying to accomplish. So this is a, I mean, this is a solid support class with a beautiful, with a beautiful, actually, honestly, it's pretty beautiful, a solid action economy 
with great multi-classing potential. And that is something you really have to think about as you're, we're talking about any of these, is how is this going to multi-class into something else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, okay. Next up. <laughs> so, so, yeah, between those, between those two, the diplomat is more about um, buffing your friends, and the investigator is more about getting those clues and um, kind of mm-hmm. using them against your enemies. That's it. Uh, the next one is the shinobi. And shinobi are just very much like you have for Alphavar. Um, they have a lot of ninjutsu tools, but I don't see as much of a, a special resource dice for them. But there's two kinds of shinobi. There's the infiltrators, and those are the I sneak in and poison people. Uh, and pretend to be, you know, the serving woman. And then there are saboteurs, and saboteurs are all about creating traps. Or having created traps in the past and then using them now. <laughs> yes, they, they do do something that Dungeons & Dragons does not do very much, but 5th edition Alvivar does, which is retroactively have traps on hand for people to have fallen into. Yeah. It's like that. Well, right. So... Here, actually, we, we I'm going to say we see kind of we see some fun design, right? Um, for two reasons. One is way, 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 way back when in Dragon Magazine, back in the days of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, there was a whole article about Ninja. Uh, because, of course, there was. <laughs> um, this was this was long. This was before Oriental Adventures. And. I don't know if they read that article, but some of the some of that language is actually in here and it makes me smile um, <laughs> uh, because I'm a geek. The second thing is that this would have been easy to do as a reskin of rogues, right? Mm. Uh, give you some skill pen, skill bonuses, give you some sneak attack, uh, make up some stuff about um how to translate that into, you know, shuriken and move on with your life. But that's not what they did. The resource they're manipulating here is status effects. Uh, In particular, when you make a melee attack against a creature that is suffering from one or more negative conditions, you roll an additional 1d4 damage per negative condition. And you can use this feature multiple times per turn. So if I get multiple attacks from another class... Or if I have actions that'll bonus actions that allow me to make attacks, uh, or even reactions, although those don't take place on your turn, but it cannot apply to the apply to the same creature more than once per turn. So what that means is I'm having to set up, I'm having to use my resources, my ninja tricks, my ability to avoid attack, my all of those all those tricks, right? that I'm going to pick up. I'm going to have to use those to set up my attacks. So now they're obscured and disoriented and poisoned and stunned and, you know, then then you hurt them. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and this is the fun part, I don't have to have applied the status effect. So if that person is bleeding and marked for death by my friend, <laughs> by my duelist friend who whacked him because mm. he got got in the way of one of my fights and my pilgrim friend uh has applied a status effect to him using one of his cool uh you know semi-mystical moves i got extra damage against this guy so shinobi have their tools to apply these things their traps as a saboteur uh you know smoke bombs and all the all those fun things caltrips but they also have a built-in mechanic for cooperation with other characters. Yeah, yeah, that's always good. Well, I was going to say, and if you've ever had a stealth character in your party, <laughs> um, that's a challenge, whether we want it to be or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so all of a sudden, I have this stealth character who's built around cooperative play. <laughs> um, that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm sorry to friend, friend, if, if that's not quite professional enough, maybe, but uh, <laughs> that, that is a neat way of approaching the problem, right? 
Um, so Shinobi, not your not your sneaky ninja. No, actually, very much your sneaky ninja. But your sneaky ninja who really likes your duelist bushi. And oh, by the way, all those courtiers who like to apply status effects using their rhetorical flourishes. Yeah, you like them too. <laughs> <laughs> so not not your not your edgy loner. No, no, not it. You could play that, but that would be missing kind of the really the kind of the synergy um, that you would get out of playing a shinobi in a group. Yeah. And as you said, the infiltrators do this kind of more individually uh, or they don't they all work as a group, but they they do this uh, by sneaking in disguises and that sort of thing. But the the saboteur have all these cool traps that they have created something called contingency plans, which means I set up a trap over there yesterday or a, or a blind or a, you know, some other thing, a, a weapons cache. I set it up there yesterday so I can go and, and do it now, which is hilarious. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. No, it, it is absolutely hilarious. It's good. It's good stuff. <sighs> I, I, I'm not going to go as so we can go on, but this is this is your Bayushi uh, duelist Shinobi who is always planning ahead and is always if you read, read the original Secrets of the Scorpion book, they talk about how you're always there helping your friends doing all of the nasty things they won't do. Well, here you go. Here's the class. Mm. <laughs> here's mechanically how you did that. Um, <laughs> Very so, cool. Yeah, and and I have a reason as that Bayushi duelist shinobi to be right there with my good friends while it's happening because I'm going to get a truckload of bonuses as we work together. <laughs> <laughs> the next class is the ritualist class. And the ritualist class are for L5R what would be primarily the shigenja uh, of different types and clans and all different origins. Um, the ritualist class basically um, focus on, they, they cast spells, they are a spellcaster class, but they improve their spells with something called favor. And the spells are, un they don't have spell slots, as I understand it, the, the way traditional Dungeons & Dragons do. They, so they, basically all their spells are cantrips, but they aren't very strong until you start pumping favor into the spells. And that makes them right. big and varied and creative. And so it takes the spellcasting space and instead of making it a fixed, um, you know, cookie cutter spell turnout thing, it is, you can vary the effects based on the amount of favor that you have and the amount of favor you can pass out. Um, there is in there, I should note a note about channeling, which is is missing what it means. Um, so if you see that in there, that's coming up in future errata. Um, for now, most people are thinking it is a way of generating more favor, but we don't know. We'll find out when it comes out in the errata. There are three kinds of uh, archetypes for ritualists. There is the artisan archetype, which makes stuff. The elementalist archetype, which does the big spells. And the medium archetype, which are the kind of kitsu or other communing with spirits focused ritualist. So you want to talk about those? Uh, sure. OK, <laughs> so <laughs> obviously the big the big resources here are your invocations, uh, which you have some you can just use mm -hmm. and then some which do require a bit of favor to use up front and your favor. So favor is something you have, and it's something that you draw from resonance, which is this idea that I'm casting a fire spell and I'm standing under the uh, blazing hot sun, and therefore I get a bonus. <laughs> um, channeling has got to be some method for getting more favor, right? Because you don't have much of it to start with. And unless you are very much... Um, setting up the scenes very specifically for your, your ritualists to have access to resonance. 
um, you're not going to have a whole lot of it to use. And at, at their base, spells don't do a whole lot. Now, this is a very, this is a gigantic change from the structure of L5R and Roll and Keep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I have, I, I am on public record as thinking that Roll and Keep has some problems. Uh, one of them is that Shigenja basically are playing a very different game than the rest of the rest of the characters. It's it's not it's not just that it's it's the the for me the the fluff of Shigenja has always been they talk to spirits they are very religious time to time the, the mechanics are they are wizards they are wizards well and that goes all the way back to right the first the first card game right um, where you attach spells. <laughs> yeah. Um so they yeah absolutely they they have not been structurally a terribly spirit oriented class. I is that even fair to say I guess but they're they're spellcasters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think even in 5th edition where there was a bit more of an attempt to do that mm-hmm. there's no or there's very little mechanical support. Right. There's a, a couple of lines that say if the GM thinks the Shigenja player is kind of taking the mickey a bit, mm-hmm. maybe you should restrict. But there's no solid mechanics for doing that right? that I can think of. Well, and so here we have solid mechanics, right? Mm. We have a, a series of actions that I've added to the character, the spells. We have a favor mechanic, which is directly tied to the environment. So descriptions, uh, it's directly tied to the religion skill. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. I mean, this, this here it is very clear what you're trying to accomplish. Um, now, whether you like that or not is another question entirely. <laughs> I, I, I certainly like the idea of it. It sounds the idea of having spells that could be more flexible, mm-hmm. because in theory, we you know the the fiction is. Your character's asking the spirits nicely, or not so nicely if they use Mace or but never mind. Uh, they're asking the spirits <laughs> nicely, could you please do the following? Mm-hmm. And that feels like intrinsically that should be flexible in right. terms of how much power, what exactly happens, what does it look like? But in L5R, we've always had very specific spells Right. That do a very specific thing. And that's, I think, where some of the, the kind of the, the dissonance comes from. A- absolutely. That is what I would call a simulationist dissonance, right? L- Ludo narrative, I think, is a very fancy word. If you really want, if you really want the, pe- the pedantic points, that's the one you use. <laughs> well, actually, what I was going to say is here we have a situation that the, simu- the game mechanic was not simulating what the story was telling us it should do. Yeah. Right. Um, And it never has. (laughs) Mm, No, no. But here we actually have it doing what what it says on the 10. (laughs) Um, Your spells are variable based off how much favor you have with the with the spirits. Mm. And you can get favor with the spirits by taking specific actions, by casting the spells under certain circumstances, by invoking the spirits in certain circumstances. And the art, the actual. the three archetypes actually do that, right? They actually, they do what they say on the 10. Artisans make things. They're alchemists. They make special charms. Um, they actually, there's one really complicated one called Enchanting Performance, where you actually, you cast different elements in sequence to create effects, to build to a crescendo. Um, calligraphy. Um, so, I mean, that's like, cool. Mm. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, look, art. <laughs> there are artisans, they make art, and yeah. art has things that it does. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that's off the box. I, I'll embrace that. Um, elementalists are better at working with um, other, with the elements. You know, they can cast multi, they can cast two elemental spells in the same round. They can, you know, push other people to do better. They have alignments with their elements. Uh, they give them bonus uh, favor. So if I'm a fire elementalist and I use more, fa- I call upon fire spirits, 
I have bonus favor to do that. So I spend two and I get three. Um, hmm. That does what it says on the 10, right? <laughs> I mean, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mediums can use, get bonus favor for communing with spirits and protecting from spirits. Yeah, and the spirits tell them things and give them skills and stuff, I believe, right? Yes, absolutely. Again, it does what it says on the 10, and it does it in a way that is actually aligned with the story and the simulation. That sounds good. Yeah, it, this is cool. So they aren't as strong. So if people are looking at just the strength, they aren't relatively as strong as they were in L5R, 5th edition, but that's because they were not really being exactly what they were. And channeling is missing, so that's that. Yeah, well, yeah, it's possible <laughs> my, my old change of suddenly, oh, channeling, oh my God, channeling is, is terrifying. <laughs> I, I've also heard, this is the other thing that I've, I've heard people say that they do like about this, is mechanically, is that this somewhat helps the perennial problem with D&D that the, there's split between casters and marshals where casters are ridiculously overpowered and, and the marshals are desperately trying to catch up the whole time. And a lot of people are saying that the balance feels a lot better mm-hmm. in this sort of setup. I don't know. Obviously, I've not played it myself. Right. But I've, I've, heard, I've heard people saying nice things about the balance. Well, part of that is actually not, not actually in the uh, ritualist, but it's actually that the Bushi and the uh, duelists, the two really strong martial archetypes, are much more fluid, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that is that that helps to make it so that they are more on par. Mm. And it's partially, yes, absolutely, um, that they they scaled down the damage to some extent on the spellcasting. Mm. Um, and I mean, just looking through it. Uh, kind of the unsung hero in D anD D of uh, spellcasting is all the status effects it applies. Yeah, uh, wizards can do some damage, but if you would rather just you know completely cripple every opponent on the field, um, you can do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which makes it feel a little like the wizard and the druid are doing all the work. Um, so I mean, th- th- there's two things happening there, right? If if the bushi and the and the duelist weren't didn't have those focus points and those techniques and that need to constantly adapt to the situation, they would probably f- still feel a little bit behind. Yeah. So, at least that's my own thinking on it, um, mm-hmm. because I see the I see the resource space on those two classes as being so much bigger than it is for a fighter or a or a barbarian. Mm-hmm. So going on to the next the next class, uh, this is probably was the strangest one for me to understand of, of all of the abilities. And that is the pilgrim. And the pilgrim uses a kind of a, a pattern or flow of actions um, to basically set themselves up into so that they, they have um this uh, sense of yin and yang and uh if they are in a yang, a yang state they get this kind of bonus if they're in a yin state they get this kind of bonus and if they're halfway in between moving towards one moving towards the other they have various bon- other kinds of bonuses and if they're balanced between the two so they always have some kind of bonus on them whether it's uh, resistance to saving throws or plus two damage or something else, depending on what state they are. And they're always moving in between yin, maximum yin, and maximum yang. So they're flowing back and forth. And the actions that they take then move them further along the path from one to another. And I think this one is the one thing that is like, you can use some tokens and for intrigue dice and focus dice and deadliness, those are great. But here I want a special spinner or something to keep track of the status. I was literally thinking that, yeah. Um, as you move between the pilgrims. But anyway, they have three um, art types in them. The path of redemption, the path of harmony, 
and the path of justice. So that's kind of their their thing. And these are for monks, basically. Yeah, this this is also one that um, I did, did hear some complaints about in terms of how well this, you know, the, adding stuff to the law, um, because yin and yang has traditionally not been a big part of L5R. Yin and yang are the Chinese names for those two elements where and yeah, where does this come from and does this fit and and stuff like that but okay um the ability to control your yin yang state is very clearly in um particularly taoist meditation um it's actually one of the attributes of a sage um yeah. it's I, I'm not going to get into the whether that is implicit or explicit within L5R lore. I, I, I think that they have not talked much about yin yang theory at all. I don't, I don't think it's there at all. There, there's some discussion of it in the early teachings of Shensei, which were obviously copied from the Lao Tzu, mm. um, with a bit of digging. I can tell you which translation, but <laughs> the um, <laughs> um. I guess my my thought there is this is a lot like Neo-Confucian theory, right? Or Confucianism. Mm. Yin-Yang theory is such a huge part of any philosophy touched by Chinese philosophy. It's hard to separate. It's it, it's certainly true that the certainly in the Heian period and, and later, the, the Onmyoji, I mean, literally Onmyoji is... The study of yin and yang. Yep. <laughs> right, and that's that's the that's the there was an official permission, official court position of on on Myoji, and there was a whole department for it. Like literally, there's it was a there was a you know right. there's there's a whole thing. Uh, it's and 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 but that also included the five elements. It it did, and in fact, the pilgrims do. Mm. So. Um, so I, what I would, I guess, what I would say is, although I, I certainly understand the argument that it is not there uh, in in Rokugan in the Rokugan discussion, except for sort of in sort of a prototypical way, um, it's hard to argue that it's not appropriate for the, for a Japanese mythical setting to have a yin yang mm. yin yang mastery. Like that, that that is a thing. Like that, maybe they could use the. I mean, I, I, I get them kind of well. If we use the Japanese terms, people might not know what they mean. Right. So we're going to use these Chinese terms that people are more familiar with. Right. But you know, one one could argue. Well, and that's the sort of thing that ends up on a writer's table that you argue about forever and never come to mm. a good decision. Right. Right. Because there's no right or wrong. It's just whichever one you pick, somebody's going to be. <laughs> you should have done it this other way. Well, probably. Um, it's it's mm. the trickiness of having a you know a culture Japan that is based in a, a lot of ways on the culture of of China. So mm. I would say it's deliberately borrowed. Mm. It's deliberately borrowed. <laughs> Fair enough. But then, but then changed quite then a lot. Changed, so. yeah. Exactly. Again. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do you how do you balance that? I have no idea. I don't think there is a, a right way. I think you just do the best you can. But what I was going to say is that pilgrims are really kind of interesting from a resource standpoint, right? Because here you have a character, one, they're going to use a resource that's almost never used in Dungeons and Dragons. They're going to use hit dice. Okay. Uh, now, what hit, what hit dice are for is for healing during, a, during the long rest, short rest periods. That's the standard D&D function. You take, for those of you who don't know, you take short rests. They're basically little hour-long breaks in the middle of your adventure to kind of reset yourself, to heal up a little bit by spending hit dice. And also, if you have short abilities that are reset after a short rest, you can then use those abilities again in the next encounters. The first thing that happens with a pilgrim is that they are cultivating their body's energy. So they have extra hit dice to use for things, for extra healing, if they need to. But I can also now, because I've cultivated my body's energy, I can now spend that energy to do things in the world. They call them externalizations. Um, and these are, you know, <laughs> uh, these are your keyhole, let's be honest. Uh, they're, they're your abilities to do things, to make things happen. Uh, magical things. 
Yeah. Pushing your energy out into the world. And this is a great, frankly, this is better than adding key to monks, right? Mm. Because your hit dice are literally your ability to you know, heal yourself. They are your life energy. Uh, so just from a, it does it on the 10, this, this, it does what it says on the 10, this does what it says on the 10. You spend your life energy to do stuff. Um, so yay. All right. Uh, and now I've added yin and yang balance. So as I am doing things, as I am taking actions, uh, I am spending my life energy and that is going to shift me back and forth along this path from doing extra damage to getting bonuses to passive perception to bonuses to saving throws to healing more rapidly. So yang for damage, kind of the balance for perception and saving throws, and then yin flowing or yin apex for healing. And so I'm going to spend yang energy and then that's going to push me back. I'm going to get more yin and I'm going to, or I'm going to spend yin energy and that's going to make me more yang. And think then about what I was taught, what I talk about in terms of, again, I hate the word interactivity. This idea that things are happening on my character sheet, I'm making constant decisions about what I'm going to do next. Yeah. And compare that to the D&D monk, where I have some abilities that I spend key for, but mostly what I do is I run in and I decide whether I'm going to hit somebody two times or three times. Yeah. Uh, or if I'm a way of shadow monk, if I'm going to teleport 60 feet in the air and then fall on his head or mm. <laughs> um, sorry, uh, but that that's a valid tactic. But or am I going to run up a wall and do that? So the point is here I now have a I'm making a bunch of decisions about how my character is going to play and what's going to happen. And I'm then making additional decisions uh at seventh level, I can then, uh, I said that they, they do actually have form of water, form of air, form of earth, form of void. Uh, that is, and those forms are actually, I can assume them as a bonus action, but they're tied to my yin or yang state. So now I have another layer of concepts. So I have my actions, I have my, my hit dice pool, I have this yin-yang, fluid yin-yang state that's based off of what, what's happening around me. And at seventh level, I have this ability to become, based off my yin-yang state, one of these different forms which have different abilities. Uh, second reaction in a round for form of water, some other stuff. Uh, form of earth actually uh, allows me to reduce non-magical bludgeoning piercing uh, and slashing damage as long as my yang state is high enough. Um, and so I'm making these decisions throughout the, throughout the encounter. It's definitely a little fiddly. Oh, it's 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 a fiddly class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think that if you played it and you didn't want to fiddle with it, didn't want to maximize it, it will just play. You you wouldn't have to worry about it so much. But if you're maximizing it, that's when you're you know think yes. of, if you think of the special things as just opportunities that oh I happen to be in the right state so now I can go boom. That's one way to play it. But if you're trying to maximize those boom moments and and get to peak, then it's very fiddly. <laughs> and so really what you have here is three archetypes, right? You have a yang archetype, the path of justice, which is, uh, yeah, which is all about, I'm just going to go in there. I, I just really want to just get in there and just beat people down, right? Uh, I'm a very yang kind of a player. And I am just going to be constantly going as Yang as I possibly can. You have the Path of Redemption, which is very much a healer. It's very Yin-focused, right? It starts towards the Yin part of the dice. Um, it's, yeah, it's a Yin game, right? I'm going to be constantly being, I'm going to set back, I'm going to support. And you have the Path of Harmony, which, honestly, I mean, it's got a lot of, um, it actually has old spells. Right. Commune with nature, entangle, modify memory, uh, insect plague at high enough levels. I'm a druid. <laughs> I'm a druid. Yeah, pretty much. I am a monk. I am a martial druid. Um, and I'm going to and I have all these abilities. I'm one with the elements. But they're requiring balance. But they're 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 the balance of the three. Right. Um, and again, I mean, 
this is a fiddly class, right? It is, and it's fiddly inside itself. So it's not like a shinobi. It's fiddly inside itself. But if that's what you want to play, I can certainly see it. Um, I'm not quite sure how it's going to fit in as well with, um, say, Bushi, which is all you know, which has also got a lot of decisions you need to make. But that's okay. <laughs> that would be a really complicated character. <laughs> I, yeah, I do find myself wondering, and we possibly want to finish after the. Maybe this is a question you need to to ask after we're all done here, but it, it's kind of appropriate to the topic. Is there the equivalent of the "I just want the simplest possible character to play because I don't have much brain energy after my long day at work before the game session," which was the role of like the champion fighter, I think. Yeah, the champion fighter. Yeah, but but in, in of of the L five R ones. Although they have, I mean, that flexibility comes with a certain amount of cognitive load. It it does, and it also um, it comes with cognitive load. It comes with decision fatigue, right? Because uh, we we could get into the question of how many decisions can a human being make in any given day. Yeah, uh, and it also comes in with questions of dyspraxia, right? Uh, there are any number of us in this world, myself included, uh, who neurologically when faced with complication, can have trouble figuring out what to do. Yeah. Now, we're the class that I would say has the least amount of fiddly bits. <laughs> and, okay. <laughs> the la- you know, and, and the least amount of decision-making uh, is actually, I would say, the acolyte. And maybe I'm wrong about that. You can tell me I'm wrong. But you get your tattoos. So, so an acolyte is specifically the one-off weird ones that are very different from each other. And the two archetypes they have are the Tagashi monks, Tagashi order, and the acolytes of shadow. And both of them, and in general they say for the whole class, is you get special marks on your body, i.e. tattoos or uh, shadow brands, that let you do different things. And because it's not got an external resource you can change your tattoos up like you can give you can have your dragon tattoo and it can be this specific kind of dragon tattoo and you can add these things called embellishments which means that it you know not only is it a normal dragon tattoo but now it has special claws on it that means that you do another thing in addition to your dragon tattoo thing but that's all during the character creation character advancement section of the the game the toy and not in the mid combat part of it when you are in combat you do your tattoo thing and you mm-hmm. can have as many oh, okay. of those as you deal with but it limits the decision making does that make sense yeah um, yeah yeah maybe maybe i'm reading that wrong shannon but that's no you're actually reading that very much right Um, so one of the way, part of the reason everybody, not everybody loves, but people love champion fighter is it's really simple, right? I got my bonuses. I've got my abilities. They're really simple that together, I know exactly what they do. Yeah. And I don't have to do, there's not a lot of thinking involved there. So acolytes actually manipulate a resource that is, again, it's a less used resource in Dungeons and Dragons, and it's called inspiration. And what an inspiration does is it gives you advantage on one roll. But it's already in the system. We're already just making decisions with inspiration anyway for Dungeons & Dragons. So. Yeah. I just say, hey, I would like to succeed on this roll, so I'm going to spend my inspiration and I'm going to do that. And so the first thing that it, well, the first thing that you get as, a, uh, as an acolyte is, you know, your, your tattoo uh, <laughs> or your first, you know, your first rank, whatever that is. Um, but the second thing that you get on, at second level is egosynthesis. At second level, when I take a long rest, I gain an inspiration. So this character, and then at fifth level, every time I take a short rest, I gain an inspiration. So this character has just as a basic ability, right, um, to just get an inspiration. And at, at fifth level, when I roll a one once per turn, on a dice for a skill check, saving throw, attack roll, or damage roll, I get an inspiration. <laughs> but the cool thing is, is that inspirations aren't 
every class has inspirations that's baked into base Dungeons and Dragons. You're still making decisions. It's just they get more of them. It's not. A, it's not a complicated thing to be able to use. No, no. It's just, do I want to succeed on this? Yes. Okay. I use my inspiration. And um, unlike any other character class, I am not reliant upon something else happening. I have mechanics that give me inspirations. It's not a role-playing thing. It's not a conflict. It's not an emotional conflict thing. It's just, hey, I rolled a one. I get an inspiration. I would like to succeed at my next attack. Roll two, roll two d20 rather than one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it, yeah. This sounds pretty up. This sounds all right, right? I mean, <laughs> um, my, and then I have the abilities that I picked when I was building my character, and they work a certain way every time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, and there's a, so much to be said for having that as as a choice. Yes, for some people, and that's the choice. That that's this class is is I think the best for for that. And it, it's funny that it's the quote unquote weirdest class in L five R. Well, my my only <laughs> objection to this class, right? My only objection to this class is it needs about three more archetypes. It really does need, there needs to be a sword saint, right? Where I'm not a, I'm neither a Tagashi nor a um, shadow branded person, but I find inspiration through the art of swordsmanship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going back to what are we simulating, right? Uh, There needs to be one in here that is for courtiers and artisans, right? Where I am, I am inspired by art. I am inspired by the work of the court and I get these inspirations and I can click them in, right? Because I want to play a character who is kind of, they're a courtier, but they're a little bit on rails, just like these other characters. Um, so I think this is a, this is a tragically under archetyped class. But you can make your own. You can make your own. <laughs> and, well, but, and, I mean, this is, this is just an example of where it would have been really nice to see another archetype or two or three, really. Yeah, it does say in there that this is in the uh, archetype, acolyte archetypes, it says that these are not the only beings who bind themselves to greater powers in Rokugan and the lands beyond, but they are among the most iconic. So it, it just it, it, it hints that you can you can make your own and have it. Leave something for the later supplements, I think. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, you can imagine for this one, a artist acolyte archetype Mm. um, where somebody is just inspired by the beauty of the world and by making beauty. You can imagine. um, Anyways, so there's lots of opportunity here. (laughs) Okay. So that's our classes and we have we have gone and we have talked about them in detail. So hopefully that gives people an idea of things to think about when they're reading the book and trying to get into a game and, and hopefully that will you know be interesting for them. There is way more in this book. This is very, very much packed. I think we have only gotten you know, maybe a quarter of way through the book in the things we've talked about so far. Um, and so we may have to invite Shannon back on to talk about the rest of the book, but I think we're out of time for talking about it today. So um, thank you very much, Shannon, for, for joining us as our D&D game uh, expert. expert. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for taking the time, and I, I hope it's been helpful to people. So Yeah, I think it should be, yeah. Anyway, uh, I wanted to give a a call out to our sister podcast, to Fortune and Strife, which is our affiliated actual play podcast. We wanted to shout out to our patrons. Thank you very much for bearing with us on our reduced schedule. Uh, Hopefully we'll have this and other things to talk about in the future uh, and come out more regularly. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs, as well as our website, where you can store and see longer-term information, summaries of our podcast, great RPG tools, and more. For our patrons, we have special bonus content, like Adventure Seeds, early access to our AP podcasts, and whatever things we happen to think of. (laughs) Online, you can find us at our website, which is courtgamespod.com. 
On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And if you want to support us, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. This is Kikita Kaori. That's it for us this week. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korvar, and until we meet again, keep your jade handy.